This is a National Arts Center podcast. Find more great NAC podcasts on the performing arts at nacpodcast.ca or search on National Arts Center on iTunes and subscribe for free. As part of the National Arts Centre Orchestra tour to the UK, which commemorates the beginning of the First World War, the orchestra will be playing a concert in Salisbury Cathedral. Salisbury Plain, a short distance away, is the area where Canadian troops assembled in October 1914 to prepare for the fighting in France. On the morning of that concert, Canadian historian Margaret Macmillan will be giving a lecture in Salisbury about Canada and the First World War. In an earlier podcast, I provided a personal impression of the war based upon my own family memories and my own investigative experiences. So, as a companion piece to that podcast, we are fortunate to have obtained an interview with Professor Macmillan. So we're talking today with Professor Margaret Macmillan from her office in uh, Oxford. She's the author of the uh, very well-known books The War That Ended the Peace and Paris 1919, which seek to explain both the roots of the conflict and its short and long-term effects. And we're fortunate to have Professor Macmillan available today to talk about that period of our collective history. Professor Macmillan, welcome to the podcast. Hello. A few days ago, a soccer game between Serbia and Albania had to be abandoned because a drone carrying the Albanian flag was flown over the pitch. Uh, Albanian fans had been refused admission because of the risk of a riot. And the present conflicts in the Middle East, which threatened to make the old borders irrelevant, are drawing in some of the major world powers again. To what extent are we still dealing with the causes and effects of the war that ended peace and the Treaty of Versailles, which tried to make sense of the world that was left afterwards? Well, I think we are in a way because what both the war did and what the peace conference at the end of the war did was draw boundaries through worlds which were often very ethnically mixed. But it's not just the fault of the war that there's been trouble since and not just the fault of the peace conference. I mean, I think what contributes to the difficulties is that you had ethnic nationalism developing in parts of the world where the ethnicities or the religions or the cultures were so mixed that it was very difficult to draw clear boundaries which put everyone of one religion or one ethnicity or one culture in the same country. And so certainly the war and the peace settlements at the end um, were trying to deal unsuccessfully with, with, with the peace settlements were trying to deal unsuccessfully with, with a complicated world. But I would say a lot of the reasons for the trouble really is the rise of ethnically based nationalism. I see. So you think then that the, the peacemakers' hearts were in the right place when they drew those uh, boundaries? Well, I think in Europe they were probably in the right place. I think what they tried to do very hard in Europe was to make ethnically viable countries. But given the mixings of population in the Balkans and in the center of Europe generally, it was almost impossible to do. Whatever they did, and they did try quite hard to make reasonably based states, is that they left something like a third of all the people living in the center of Europe as ethnic minorities in the country in which they lived. Now, that hadn't mattered in the old days because whatever your ethnicity was didn't mean that you were necessarily a nation. But with the rise of ethnic nationalism, 
then it becomes difficult. Now, in the Middle East, it was more complicated because there the boundaries were drawn not so much to reflect realities on the ground, although they were a bit. But of course, we know they were also drawn to suit the two great imperial powers in the Middle East at the time, and that was Britain and France. You know, one of the aspects of nationalism, uh, at least on a large scale, seems to be the desire of the great powers to have these spheres of influence where perhaps they had no business having spheres of influence. I mean, we had the nationalism on a small scale, uh, for instance, uh, Serb nationalism, uh, and then you had the nationalism of the, say, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which was seeking to sort of control this area of its influence, especially in light of the decline of the Turkish Empire. So how do you get these two kinds of nationalism to square with one another, if you can even? Yeah, well, in fact, yes, I, I agree. And I mean, I think it's natural for great powers to have spheres of influence. I and mean, they always worry about what's on their back door. And being great powers, they're in a position to do something about it. I mean, smaller powers may worry about what the, who their neighbors are, but they can't do much about it or what their neighbors get up to. But I think it was possible, for example, for Austria, Hungary and Russia to agree in the Balkans. And in fact, they had a more or less standstill agreement up until 1908, where both of the great powers, Austria, Hungary and Russia, agreed that they would not make moves in the Balkans, they would respect um, the territorial integrity of the existing Balkan states, they wouldn't try and and grab territory, They, they would work together. And that broke down in 1908 with fatal consequences. But I do think it's possible for great powers to come to some sort of agreement. And in fact, it was really sensible of them, because it by going to war in 1914, Austria-Hungary and Russia, the Russian regimes in both Austria-Hungary and Russia destroyed themselves and, and helped to destroy their, their, their countries. That's right. Um, I suppose the idea of a balance of power in Europe, if I'm not mistaken, began perhaps at the Congress of Vienna. Is that, would, you, would you consider that to be true? Um, a balance of power implies that there's sort of a maneuvering to try and make sure that not one power gets too strong. But what came out of the Congress of Vienna was something rather new and, and different from the 18th century, and that was the idea of a concert of Europe. And there was a very interesting development, I think, from the 18th century where international relations were seen as a zero-sum game. Some country won, some country had to lose. If some country was going to lose, another country was going to win. What you got at the end of the Napoleonic Wars was a recognition by the great powers that none of them really wanted continual war, that they all had an interest in a stable international order. And so you had a very different idea from a balance of power. You really had something more cooperative. And you had something called the Concert of Europe, where the great powers of Europe worked together to try and keep stability in Europe. They, they tended to be conservative. They didn't want revolutions and they didn't want too much excitement. But in fact, they were quite successful, at least until the middle of the 19th century. And I think after the First World War, we moved again towards that, the idea that we all have something to be gained from a safe and peaceful international order. And again, after the Second World War, we, we moved again to that. And I think we still feel that, that you know, we'd rather not live in a world where it's dog eat dog and where someone has to lose if someone else is going to win, that in fact, we're all better off if we live in a world in which we work together. Mm-hmm. One of the things that comes out in, in, the, in the war that ended peace is the the confusion, if you like, between the elected governments and other personalities like, for instance, the Tsar or the Kaiser. Um, to what extent did that influence the, uh, the decision-making that uh, finished up with war? Well, the countries that had more developed constitutional government had more constraints around their governments. And so in the case of Britain, 
where you didn't yet have universal suffrage, but you had a fairly broad electorate, all men at that stage, and where you had governments that had to respond to the wishes of their, their, their electorate or, or lose the next election. I mean, this, this was actually a very real constraint, and they had to respond to fairly well-organized public opinion and press campaigns and so on. What that meant is governments had less freedom to maneuver and had to pay more attention to their publics. That was true of France, that was true of Britain, it was true to a much lesser extent in Germany, but even in Germany you had um, something called public opinion and German governments had to pay attention to it. And then when you go further east, you get Austria-Hungary and Russia, where the governments have more power, they're more absolutist, but that was changing. And you get the Tsar complaining by in the, in the decade before 1914 that I have to worry about public opinion. It's not, not something he really had to worry about much before. And in Austria-Hungary, the old emperor and his heir, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, had to pay some attention to what was emerging as a very important force. Public opinion is now becoming a force even in countries where there isn't yet full-scale constitutional government. I see. It's ironic that the Archduke, who was assassinated, was was probably one of the uh, strongest in the peace movement in, in Austria. And by killing him, they uh, may have destroyed their hopes for a, for a lasting peace. Well, it is one of the great ironies and one of the great what-ifs. I mean, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand wasn't a, an easy man and, and in many ways not a pleasant man. I mean, he was deeply conservative, not reactionary, um, tended to be anti-Semitic, hated the Hungarians, hated all sorts of people, actually. Um, seems to have got most of his pleasure out of shooting endless numbers of birds and game. I mean, I don't know, how he, he shot something like 50,000 birds in his lifetime. was very proud of it. But he was sensible. And whenever there was a crisis in Austria-Hungary and whenever the hawks talked about, let's go out and let's destroy Serbia, it's a menace to us sitting down there on our southern border, he'd say no. He said it would be very stupid of us, he said repeatedly, to go to war with Serbia. It runs the risk of bringing Russia in, and it will end up destroying us. I mean, he was really quite right about that. And so it is an irony that in killing him, the assassins in Sarajevo removed the one strong voice at the center in Vienna who would have said, don't go to war against Serbia. And that left a very old and ailing emperor alone with the hawks. The biggest question for me, arising uh, from your book and other books I've read about the origins of the war, is, it seems crazy, but why did Germany and England go to war? I know it does seem crazy, because if you had looked at the world in 1900, um, you know, a decade and a half before, you would have said, well, the natural alliance in Europe, which hasn't yet fully formed, is that between Germany and Britain. Germany has the biggest army in, in Europe. Britain has the biggest navy in the world. So those two mesh rather nicely. They're each other's biggest trading partners. They share values. Both were majority Protestant countries. They shared royal families. You know, they're all totally intertwined. And a lot of British people really admired German knowledge, German learning. I think when the war broke out in 1914, there were four cabinet ministers in the British cabinet who'd gone to German universities. And so if you looked at the situation, you would have said, well, of course, that's a natural alliance. They've got so much in common. They trade with each other. They're getting linked more and more closely economically. But, of course, they ended up on opposite sides. And, and my own view is that is very largely, well, partly was, is worry. Because if you trade with someone, you also get suspicious. Are they getting too far ahead? I mean, we look at the United States and China, who are economically linked, but doesn't make them all happier with each other. But I think if you would, you know, what really, I think, made the difference was the German decision to build a big deep water navy, because any deep water navy comes straight out of the Kiel Canal, which it was able to do by June 1914, or it will come out um, through the, the Straits past, past Denmark, out into the North Sea, and the nearest country on its route is Britain. And so the British saw the development of a German navy as a direct threat 
to their own position in the world, to the security of the shipping lanes, to their links with their, their empire, and to the British Isles itself. And so the German decision to build a navy, which in my view was utterly foolish, and in the end the navy was not much use for anything, cost a lot of money and didn't ever do very much, really drove Britain to look for other friends. And it drove Britain into the arms of its two really bitter enemies. I mean, if anyone had said again in 1900, and Britain and France are going to be each other's new best friends, people would have laughed. I mean, 1898, they nearly went to war. Six years later, they're, you know, embracing each other and visits to Paris by the King of Britain and all sorts of talk about the Entente Cordiale and vive, vive la France and vive le King Edouard and all this sort of stuff. And if you'd said that three years after the Entente Cordiale with France, the British would have also uh, developed a new friendship with Russia, people would have laughed because Russia and Britain had been at odds in Central Asia and the British were terrified of Russian moves into Persia and, and down towards India. And it really, I think, was the German decision to start a naval race that drove Britain away from what seems like a natural alliance with Germany towards its old enemies, Britain and France. It is Britain. ironic. Yeah. It is ironic because uh, England and France had been fighting since you know medieval times. Oh, I know. And they, they, they fought the Russians in the Crimean War. I don't think England ever fought the Germans before the First World War, did they? Unless I'm mistaken. Well, they, they weren't Germans to fight. They fought um, in, the, in the Seven Years' War. And in the, you know, they, they did fight German, they fought German states from time yeah, to time. Yeah, Prussia and so forth. But there was no Germany for them to fight. And, and a lot of British were quite pleased when Germany was formed in 1871. They thought this is a nice balance against France and against Russia. Mm-hmm. Well, on the nationalism subject, um, at the beginning of the war, Canada was a fully paid up member of the British Empire. How do you feel the war contributed to a greater feeling of Canadian identity and independent thought? And to what extent did the idea of deference to the mother country diminish during and after the war? It's a very good question. And I think what the the First World War did was speed up a process that was already happening. And Canadians were very conscious that they were part of the British Empire. And of course, in the case of English speaking, Canadians often had very direct family links with the British Isles. I mean, many Canadians, English speakers particularly, were first generation emigrants, uh, immigrants from the British Isles to, to Canada. And so they felt themselves very much part of the British Empire, but they were increasingly seeing themselves as Canadians within it. And they were seeing themselves as somehow a bit different, perhaps a bit more vigorous, a bit healthier. They lived in what you know more open spaces. They, they tended to be more independent. And so I think you're already getting the develop a, de- development of the sense of Canadians as somehow still within the British nationality, but somehow becoming a bit different. And so I think that's important. Even before the First World War, you're getting Canadian governments demanding more control over their own external affairs. That is all relations outside the empire, uh, more control. They, they already have self-government, the responsible government in Canada, so they already have that. But they're pushing, I think, for a greater share, and they're beginning to push for a greater share in the government of the empire. What the First World War does is speed that up. And what it also does is really weaken that, that Canadian deference to Britain. Um, The Canadians no longer think that London knows the answer to all the world's problems. And you can see it very, very clearly in Sir Robert Borden, for example, who the Canadian Prime Minister at the time, who in 1914 says to his High Commissioner in London, would you mind finding out from the British government, but you know, more or less do it politely, what they're planning to do. And by 1916, um, by the end of 1916, he's sort of slamming his fist on the table and saying, this isn't good enough. We want to know what you're doing. You're not managing the war well. We have all sorts of criticisms. And increasingly, the Canadians are saying, we want to share in the running of the war. And when the peace comes, we want to have a voice in what sort of peace it is. So it's a very important milestone on the Canadian move towards full independence. 
I get the impression, reading personal accounts, that the British uh, thought the Canadians and the Australians were a bunch of savages and uh, colonials and beneath contempt. Well, I don't know. I mean, a lot of the British admired the colonials because they, they, they did seem to be more vigorous and more self-assertive and they didn't seem to have the deference that a lot of British had. And a lot of people from the colonies, of course, played a very important part in British public life. Um, General Smuts, mm-hmm. who came from South Africa, was part of the, the, the British War Cabinet, um, the only colonial to be on the cabinet in the cabinet. And of course, you had people like Lord Beaverbrook, who was enormously important in British politics. And so I think, you know, that yes, I mean, there were probably people in, in London who said, oh, look, look at those people. They don't know how, how to hold a knife and fork. But I think in a lot of quarters, there's really admiration for people who are seen as being of, of British stock, perhaps, but somehow developing in different ways and having a self-assertiveness. One of the things that struck me uh, is that when the war began, many of the men, at least the English men, uh, my grandfather, one of my grandfathers is only five feet tall, the officers were on average about five or six inches taller than the enlisted men. I suspect that in uh, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, that uh, the difference was much less and perhaps that has something to do with the uh, respect they eventually earned. I think there's that. I think, you know, they, they came, I think they had often grown up being better, better fed. Um, they came from, as many Canadians and Australians said, we come from the great open doors. Uh, you know, we, we tend to be more out of doors. We tend to be tougher. Um, and I think also Canada and Australia, although they had classes, were not nearly as class ridden as Britain was. And, and it, in fact, it rather horrified the British officers because Canadian officers tended to be rather chummy with their with their men in a way that a lot of British officers um, rather disapproved of. So I, I think they were they were they were bringing different attitudes and different values. And of course, you know, it, it turned out the Canadians and Australians, New Zealanders, Newfoundlanders were very good soldiers um, in many ways. Um, innovating, um, for example, it's always said that Canadians pioneered the trench trench raiding parties where people would go out you know, in the dark, in small groups, rather than these massive attacks and, and raid the German trenches. So I think the the colonial troops, as they were known, um, developed really a very good reputation. It seems that uh, the success of Vimy was largely due to the fact that the Canadians were well-trained and everyone knew exactly what was going on, both small and large scale, as opposed to some of the earlier uh, offences where most people didn't know what, what was going on at all. Um, I think we played an important part at Vimy. I think we probably tend to exaggerate our role there. I mean, we, we should remember there were a lot of, of British troops there as well. Mm-hmm. And the planning um, was done by British officers, by and large, and, and the senior officers in charge of the whole um, that whole front were British officers. So this was not a purely Canadian action. I mean, it's an important moment for Canadian troops, but perhaps even more important are the, are the battles in, in successive years. Um, at Passchendaele, for example, where Canadians play an increasingly um, important and, and independent role. I mean, you can really see um, the Canadian armed forces developing as a, as a, as a autonomous, not independent, but autonomous force within, within um, the British armies. And I think you see this developing. But I think my own suspicion is we tend perhaps to, to, to see Vimy as an entirely Canadian thing. We should remember there were, there were an awful lot of British there as well. A bit more romanticized. A bit. Well, you know, wars produce myths. They, they become part of national mythology. Okay, here's a big question. What's your responsibility as a historian? Uh, to what extent is the historian obliged to tell a story or to provide a particular version of events? How do you sort of view your role as a historian? 
I think you try and tell as honest a story as you can, which means that you don't go beyond what the evidence will let you say. You don't put thoughts and ideas and words into people's heads or mouths if you don't know that they were saying or thinking those things. I think you try and take into account the different aspects of the story. Um, you don't do just a one-dimensional interpretation. You, you try and look, as I was just saying with Vimy, you know, you could tell a wonderful story about Vimy that it was entirely Canadian, not mention anything else, but I'm not sure that's the full story. And so I think what we're trying to do as Canadian, as, as historians, is give an honest account as we can. In your book, uh, The Uses and Abuses of History, you outline some of the potential dangers arising both from an ignorance of history and the manipulation or suppression of history to suit a social or political agenda. Um, and it reminds me, uh, in, the, in the introduction to uh, 1066 and all that, the authors suggest, uh, perhaps not quite tongue-in-cheek, that history is not what you thought, it's what you can remember. So how do you achieve a balance between what actually happened and what people choose to remember? Well, you can't. I mean, you can never know what actually happened because the records are always imperfect or partial. You know, it depends on who's, who's, who's writing the account. And as historians, that's what we learn. We learn to look at where the record's coming from. You know, if it's someone, if it's someone writes an autobiography five years after an event saying that I was always absolutely right and all my fellow officers or whatever or, or colleagues were absolutely wrong, then you're a bit suspicious because people write things to try and, and clear themselves or exculpate themselves. And so you have to look with a certain amount of um, suspicion at where the source is coming from. And you have to keep on telling yourself, is there going to be things you're never going to know? I mean, records are by their nature imperfect and we don't have full records of everything. Things get lost, things get, you know, records get destroyed. Um, people don't write down crucial meetings or they try and write them down later on and, and distort it. So you do your best. But it's like it's like, you know, it's like ordinary life. I mean, you have a discussion with someone, say, a week ago. And if you both had to reconstruct it, you probably come up with rather different versions because memory is an imperfect thing. I think we just do our best and we have to be aware of where there are gaps. Would you suggest then that that history is sort of a tapestry of varying versions? I mean, at least in the last 30 or 40 years, we have Marxist history and we have feminist history and we have black history. Are they important in, a, in, a, in and of themselves or are they just part of a larger picture? Um, I think they're important. I think both, actually. I think they're important in themselves because they're recovering the stories and the voices of people whose histories may have been submerged or ignored. I mean, when I was a student at the University of Toronto in the 1960s, there wasn't a thing called women's history because people weren't all that interested in it. And then with the feminist movement of the 1970s and 1980s, suddenly women's history became very interesting and important indeed. So I think what all these new types of history do is add to the depth of our understanding of a particular era. But my own view is you should try and bring them all together. So I wouldn't like to do an exclusively Marxist version of history because I think it has imperfections. I think it tends to leave out certain things, including chance, um, contingency, um, perhaps underestimates the idea of, of political structures and political ideas. And so my own view as an historian is we're always trying to give as full a picture of the past as possible and recognize the limits of what we can do. One of the things that you talk about in The War That Ended Peace is the importance of the individual decisions that were taken. And the way you flesh out some of the characters uh, makes history much more interesting. 
I was thinking, you know, I was reading recently a history of the English Civil War by Christopher Hill. I admire him quite a bit, but his his writing style is is pretty hard to get through. Uh, there's a, a lack of sort of personalities jumping off the page in the way that uh, yours do. Do you have a particular view of that? Well, he was very much a Marxist historian, and, and Marxists tend to downplay individuals. And you know, in a way, they're right. I mean, the great currents of history matter, economic structures matter, political structures matter, the, the nature of the population matters, geography matters, all these things matter. But my view is that you have to, of course, understand that. But there are moments in history, not always, when the individual matters. Now, sometimes it doesn't matter who's in government because they don't they're not called upon to make great decisions. But sometimes it really does. And I think in 1914, for example, it mattered because it mattered what the character of the Kaiser of Germany was like or the Tsar of Russia was like or the Emperor of Austria-Hungary was like because those men had great power. And in the end, they could have refused to sign the documents that took their countries to war, and they didn't. Uh, of course, they had tremendous pressures on them, but nevertheless, I think the individuals at certain times matter. And I think it's very difficult to imagine the history of the 20th century without looking at the individual personalities of Hitler, of Stalin, of Mao, um, perhaps of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. I mean, these are figures, Churchill, these, Mackenzie King, these are figures who... You know, of course, they, they depended on, on their, the structures they inherited. They were creatures of their time. But they actually made a difference because of who they were and because of the ways in which they pushed politics in one direction or another. It certainly makes history more interesting when you understand the personalities involved. Well, and history is a story, you know, and I've always thought that history is a branch of literature. It's not a science. And what you're trying to do in history, at least what I'm trying to do, is, is make people enjoy it and make people see that it's interesting, that it can be fun, that it can be fascinating, and that it might tell them something about their own world. Well, I remember Jim Trevelyan wrote an essay once on the influence of Walter Scott on history. Um, mm. how, do you, uh, how, do you, how do you blend the storytelling with the accuracy, I guess is the most yeah. difficult question. Well, that's what, as historians, you're always struggling with that. Um, I envy sometimes those who write historical fiction because they can go beyond what we know, and they often do so in very imaginative ways. And I think, you know, I think of Hilary Mantel, for example, who, who is extraordinary and, and helps to give a dimension to the past, which I find wonderful because she's able to put herself in, or she seems to be able to put herself inside the heads of people in the past, and she gives a sense of color and texture and smell and feel to the past, which I think is part of trying to understand the past. But of course, she's not bound by needing to find the exact document that said, you know, on Thursday, the 25th of November, um, the king was wearing a red velvet doublet. You know, she can she can imagine him into that. But I I think historical fiction can add um, tremendously if it's well done to our understanding of, of a period. Well, when we were in high school, uh, history, at least in Ontario, was a compulsory subject from grade nine to grade 13. Uh, that's no longer the case. H how important is the study of history today, given that politicians and the voting public seem to have such short and uh, selective memories. Well, of course, my own view, and I'm biased, is that it still is very important because if you don't know what produced your institutions and what shaped your society, then you're missing a whole dimension of what makes your society. And I think you understand it less well if you don't understand that. I mean, how do you really know why constitutional and democratic government is important unless you understand something about how it evolved and why it was important and what it was like before? And so I think history is very important um, in self-knowledge and understanding the world in which you live. I think it's also um, important to understand history as, as members of the general public. We all should, as citizens, understand history because 
our political leaders will use it. And I think we need to be able to say to them, you know, this is not just like Munich all over again, or this is not just like the Cold War all over again. Um, because if you will, if you notice, I mean, political leaders often use history to justify what they're doing. You know, they say, oh, we're just like this situation. We need to do this. And if we don't know what it is they're referring to, then we can't even challenge them. There's no context for decision making. Yeah, no, exactly. Do you think there'll be as much interest in the 100th anniversary of the Second World War as there has been in the uh, beginning of the First World War? I, it's a very good question. I think we'll have to wait and see. Um, but I think there might be. And I think it'll be a different sort of interest because particularly for people living in the West and, and also for people in Russia, the First World War tends to be seen as a mistake and something that led to terrible waste and, and terrible destruction Whereas the Second World War, which also led to terrible waste and destruction, but the Second World War is somehow seen as the good war. It's, you know, the, the, the good guys were fighting the bad guys. Now that is way too oversimplified. And we, the good guys, were indeed fighting very, very wicked people indeed. But we were fighting side by side with Stalin's Soviet Russia, which was in its own way as hideous a dictatorship as, as the Nazi totalitarian state. But I think we see the Second World War very much somehow in contrast to the First World War as a good war that was morally much more clear cut. Well, we'll look forward to hearing your lecture. And uh, the, uh, the NAC tour uh, winds up the day after your lecture, which is in Salisbury. But the uh, concert in Salisbury Cathedral is going to be a big highlight of the tour. I think it's going to be broadcast by CBC and also by the BBC. So uh, we'll hope to uh, see you in Salisbury, and thanks very much for doing this. Well, I look very forward very much to seeing you, and, and happy travelling. Thanks very much, Professor McMillan. Okay. This has been a National Arts Centre podcast produced in Ottawa by NAC New Media. Send us your comments and questions. Email us at nacpodcasts at gmail.com. Visit the podcast section of the iTunes store where you can rate and comment on this podcast. We love to hear from you. Remember, you can find more great NAC podcasts at nacpodcast.ca or search on National Arts Centre on iTunes and subscribe for free. Until next time, goodbye from Canada's National Arts Centre.